You are listening to ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Personalized medicine, a social and political topic, yes, but is it also a matter of concern for how we see and treat our patients? Can a patient's personal genetic makeup guide the types and regimens of drugs that we prescribe? Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Garrett Fitzgerald, Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology, Chair of the Department of Pharmacology, and Director of the Institute for Translational Medicine and Therapeutics at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Fitzgerald. Glad to be here. Dr. Fitzgerald and I will be discussing how we as practicing physicians can prescribe medication based on our patient's personal genetic makeup. What exactly is personalized medicine in this context, Dr. Fitzgerald? In a sense, personalized medicine is what physicians practice with individual patients every day of the week. As you know, problems are dealt with in clinic between a physician and a patient, and it doesn't get more personal than that. But the tag, the catchphrase, has really begun to be applied to the vision of being able to really enhance the science around the decision-making that that physician can make for an individual patient. Does that tie in then directly to genetics and the sequencing of DNA? Well, it's really tying into the concept that the way we try and find out whether drugs work or whether they do so safely at the moment is based on large average effects in populations. We perform large trials, we look at large numbers of people, and we look for differences between drug A and drug B. Those differences have to be pretty large if we can detect them with as crude a detector system as these large trials. And buried within the absence of a difference, for example, could be segments of the population where the drug works very well. What we're trying to do is pluck out those individuals particularly susceptible to a drug working well and to a drug working safely and well. And to some extent, that is based on their genetics. And are there other elements that you use to try to choose these subpopulations? Well, it's really an evolving vision where many different types of technologies, which are developing very quickly at the moment, come into play. But in essence, what we want to be able to do ultimately is to delve down into an individual's genetic background in some considerable detail and to put that together with other measurements of how the drug might act by measuring the levels of the drug, its metabolites, its breakdown products, by measuring how the individual might respond to a drug in some greater detail than we do at present and to try and integrate all that information to say, if you have this type of genetic makeup, this type of dose of a drug is likely to do X to you, and we can measure that type of response. If you have another type of genetic makeup, this means that we're on the lookout for the possibility that this drug might work for you, but might also be likely to cause you some harm. So it might prompt us to look in much greater detail for the possibility of a risk at the stage of its development as opposed to after it's already occurred. So it's a sort of complex issue, as you can imagine. It requires the cheap, available ability to look at people's genetic makeup in great detail, and it needs us to be able to integrate that with other types of information. So this is a a pretty much a paradigm shift, it sounds like, in how we might develop pharmaceuticals. Yeah. As you know, the approach up to now has to be been to look for a drug that is a blockbuster, that that makes a very large amount of money by having an average effect that can be detected, a 
and then give it to everybody in the population. And we've got a bit more sophisticated now. We know that these drugs only are likely to work in a fraction of the population. And we often run into a situation where these drugs might cause serious problems, but again, in a minority of the population. And what we've really got to do now is deploy the science in a way that lets us harvest the benefit at the individual level while scientifically managing the risk, excluding those people most likely to develop harm from a drug from ever being exposed to it and being tuned up in terms of people who might develop a problem with the drug to look in some detail as they continue to be dosed with the drug for the possibility of risk emerging. It sounds like the logistics of this will require a lot of effort, a lot of work. The general concept, though, I wonder if this will have any effect on which drugs do get developed and are there some risks there? To some extent, you could say there are some risks in pursuing the model that we have at the moment. As you know, with the current business model of drug development, even though huge amounts of new money have been poured in over the last decade, and we've done a very good job at discovering new rational targets for drug development, where we have run aground is actually bringing new drugs to market. And the number of new drugs coming to market over the last several years has frozen at a relatively low number. So we need to get much more sophisticated in drug development, just as sophisticated as we have become in drug discovery. So development is is taking something we've discovered and bringing it all the way through to being a new treatment in the clinic. And that's where things have to change. And in a sense, this is a virtuous circle. It's something that needs to happen for patients. It's something that needs to happen for the business model of a critical industry in this country. And it's something that needs to happen in terms of third-party payers, because right now, with this business model, we're treating large numbers of people who are unlikely to benefit from a drug with it. We're paying for that. And we're finding ourselves with this business model running into a blind alley in terms of the new drugs that we can deliver. So we need to get more sophisticated. And the good news is that the technologies that permit us to do that are emerging very rapidly. But it still remains a huge challenge. You are currently listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and we are discussing personalizing medication with Dr. Garrett Fitzgerald from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fitzgerald, how might this tie into the safety? I know you were the prime mover in some of the issues with Vioxx and the other COX-2s. Can you tie that in? Well, if you take that group of drugs, which we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, these are the commonest drugs taken by people on the planet. We had a situation there where we developed some new drugs in that class that were selective for one of the COX enzymes, these COX-2 inhibitors like Vioxx and Celebrex. And the expectation was, based on the science, that doing that would maintain the usefulness of these drugs but reduce the likelihood of them causing tummy troubles. And tummy troubles were the commonest cause of a problem with these older drugs. It turned out that the very mechanism by which these drugs work also undermined some of the protective roles of the compounds that they inhibited for the the cardiovascular system, for the heart and blood vessels. So you wound up with drugs that were safer for the stomach but on the one hand, but conferred a risk of heart problems on the other. As far as that's concerned, that group of drugs 
is an ideal example of something that potentially could be very personalized. Both on the side of how they work, patients usually say, you know, amongst these drugs, there's only one of these drugs that really works well for me. Actually, no science has ever been done to determine whether that anecdote is actually true. Patients say it all the time anecdotally, but we don't actually have any scientific evidence that that's true. If that is true, if people differ in how well these drugs work between individuals, then we can find out why. We can find out what are the genes that are relevant to influencing that difference. On the other side of things, as far as safety is concerned, again, we can do the science to determine whether we can pick out people at emerging risk of heart problems with these drugs. I will often say to my patients, uh, we have these NSAIDs, it's like Coke and Pepsi, you just have to try them and see. You're suggesting that we may more scientifically be able to choose which people would benefit from Coke versus Pepsi, and also we could have identified which people would have been at higher risk for the cardiovascular complications of blocking those prostaglandins with these agents. As we talked about at the beginning, it's, it's an example where, where practitioners actually practice personalized medicine, by, and so do patients, by, by trying the drugs and seeing if they work or not. But what we really need to do is deploy science to really inform those choices. As a practicing doctor or seeing patients in the office, it sounds like a Star Trek many decades away that we would have this. Are we getting close to some practical applications? Well, I think we have one or two practical examples. We have a couple of drugs in cancer, Herceptin being one of them, where, where those drugs were almost neglected at the beginning because trials were done in undifferentiated populations and they didn't seem to work. And then it was found that people with particular variations in their genes were, were exquisitely susceptible to the benefits of these drugs. So if you like, we have a couple of working examples that are out in the market at the moment. To deploy that type of approach to the majority of the drugs that we use absolutely is a five to 10 year challenge. But in a sense, the tools are really becoming available to us to refine the way we can approach that challenge. One of the difficulties is that it requires harnessing several different disciplines of science and integrating them in a way that is non-traditional. But again, there's a real focus on that uh, in many institutions, including our own, under the rubric of translational medicine. So bringing these various disciplines together, we are really within five to ten years of some additional practical applications of this personalized medicine. Uh, I think five to ten years for it to have a really big impact, but even already we're beginning to refine in an incremental way the way we use medicines. For example, the FDA approved recently the approval of some genetic tests that help us use some blood thinning drugs in a way that minimizes the likelihood of patients running into problems with excessive bleeding. So I think you'll see lots of sort of small increments as we move along the path towards the ultimate personalization of medicine with the development of tests that incrementally refine the way we do things. But, but ultimately, we're heading towards, as you called it, a paradigm shift. I wonder if, if some of this information falls into the hands of insurance companies and employers. Is there some potential for harm to patients? Yeah. I alluded to the fact that it's a very, if you like, multidisciplinary challenge. And that is true of the science and it's true of the technology. But of course, the personalization of medicine has 
has challenges that go beyond those two domains. It has an economic complexity. As we move away from this blockbuster model, you're moving to a model where your drug will work in a smaller number of people, but maybe you can pair the expense of that drug with some diagnostic tests that help refine its utilization. So if you like, the economic model changes. It has big social and political dimensions to it. Exactly as you said, the access to pervasive and detailed genomic information at an individual level is a hot political potato and something that cuts right to the issues of privacy and personal dignity. We are taught to think of our patients as individuals and with some of the concepts that Dr. Fitzgerald has been outlining for us, we may be able to do so very shortly in ways we never thought possible before. Very exciting stuff, Dr. Fitzgerald. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.